It's going to take a lot of collaboration to get humans to Mars, but we're up for the challenge. This week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al-Ahmed of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. A few weeks ago, Matt Kaplan, the creator of this show and now Senior Communications Advisor at the Planetary Society, took an adventure to the Humans to Mars Summit. It's hosted by our friends at Explore Mars. We'll share his conversation with three NASA Associate Administrators, Nicola Fox, James Free, and James Reuter, about the international, commercial, and robotic collaboration that it's going to take to get the first humans to Mars. Then Bruce Betts and I will share what's up in the night sky and a chance to win a grab bag of prizes in one of our last space trivia contests. And now for some space news. The James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, has found signs of an essential carbon molecule in a planet-forming disk. Methenium, also known as methyl cation, is a carbon compound thought to play an important role in organic chemistry by building more complex carbon molecules, which are the foundation of life as we know it. JWST once again proved its astonishing sensitivity when it detected methenium in a protoplanetary disk in the Orion Nebula. And researchers have found an object that blurs the lines between planet and star. The object is a brown dwarf, a class of celestial objects that typically is hotter than a planet, but cooler than the coolest red dwarf stars. This particular brown dwarf has temperatures hotter than those of the sun, although it's just on one side. This is because that side of the brown dwarf faces a nearby white dwarf star. This new discovery is shedding light on classes of objects that defy our usual categorization. Meanwhile in Europe, ESA is taking big steps to reduce orbital debris. The European Space Agency and three European satellite manufacturers recently announced plans to address the issue of potentially dangerous debris in Earth orbit. They're developing a zero-debris charter that would hold signatories responsible for deorbiting their satellites at the end of their operating lifetimes. And lastly, the Mars Sample Return Mission is facing challenges. The NASA program, which aims to collect and return to Earth the samples of Martian regolith that the Perseverance rover has been selecting and caching, is undergoing a second independent review amid growing cost estimates and daunting technical and managerial challenges. Planetary Society Chief of Space Policy Casey Dreyer unpacks this issue and explains how it could affect other planetary science missions in one of our newest articles. You can read Casey's article and learn more about any of these stories in the June 30th edition of our weekly newsletter, The Downlink. Read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org downlink. And now for our main topic of the day. How do we get humans to the Red Planet? Explore Mars's annual conference, the Humans to Mars Summit, was held on May 16th through 18th at the National Academy of Sciences Building in Washington, D.C., USA. The conference brought together leaders from NASA, commercial and industrial space companies, international leaders, and STEM professionals to think about the next steps that it's going to take to get humans to the Red Planet, and, if possible, accomplish this mind-blowing feat by the mid-2030s. It's going to take a lot of teamwork to get the first humans to Mars, but can you imagine what it would mean for humanity? Our friend Matt Kaplan, who created this show and is the former host of Planetary Radio, is now our senior communications advisor at the Planetary Society, and he hosted a panel at the conference with three NASA associate administrators. Nicola Fox from the Science Mission Directorate, James Free from the Exploration Systems Development Mission Directorate, and James Reuter from the Space Technology Mission Directorate. During the conversation, you'll hear them refer to NASA's CLPS, or CLPS, program. That stands for the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program. With the CLPS initiative, NASA has been competitively funding commercial companies to build spacecraft that autonomously land on the moon, taking NASA science and technology payloads along with them. 
I assume that is uh, for the very distinguished panel that um, I'm honored to bring out today. Uh, to start, to my immediate left, Nicola, Nikki Fox of the Science Mission Directorate, then Jim Free, who is uh, the ESDMD, Exploration Systems Development Mission Directorate, and Jim Reuter, who uh, there's something special that has to be said here, Space Technology Mission Directorate, of course, but, what was it, uh, two weeks ago, I think I got the release from NASA that you are ready to retire after over 40 years with the agency, rising to associate administrator. So, congratulations and thank you, Jim. Uh, and we, please. It, um, I, I do want to say uh, th thank you. I really appreciate the, the sentiment. But what I would say is, I think you said I was ready, announced I was ready to retire. A more accurate would say is probably that I'm, I've decided to retire. We'll, we'll decide. We'll determine whether <laughs> I'm coming. ready. Okay. Coming soon. Um, and we may come back to that because I may want right. to hear about some highlights from you. It's not, strictly speaking, the title or fit the theme of this particular session, but I have to ask because it's what we're talking about overall. And we're following that panel of uh, experts on can we get humans to Mars or at least around Mars by 2033? Can we put footprints on Mars by 2040? I'll throw it out to all of you. Uh, Nikki? Oh, I think we're certainly very supportive of doing it. We're doing all the pre-work that we can to do it, but um, I think that would be a bit ambitious, Jim. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you've heard our deputy administrator talk about 2039 mission. And uh, I think when we back that up and connect it with what we're trying to do uh, on the moon, that is gonna be tough. Really, we have to start launching things in probably 2032, 2035 to head out to the moon, to pre-position things for the crew with the current um, architecture that we would have in place. We also need some time to learn on the moon uh, in that reduced gravity environment of how our systems work, how, including our human systems. Um, so it, it absolutely is aggressive uh, to do that, um, but that's the, the timeline that I worry about and getting stuff done in time to, to meet those launch dates. And, and I'd say that is an audacious goal. Uh, for us to meet. And as Jim said, uh, in what 2039 implies is that you really start the, the transit there, the logistics train uh, in the early 2030s. So the, the, the audaciousness of the 2033 discussion you just had is, is about when you'd have to do, start accomplishing that. And, and for me, you know, we run technology, so a big part of this is, well, do we have the technologies ready for that? And while well, 2039 well, okay, that's 17 years or 16 years from now. It may sound like a lot, but it's a very short time in terms of many of the technologies that we need to develop are really need to be going strongly. So You've already brought up something that I wanted to mention, and I kind of puzzle over why we still have some people asking why the moon as a stepping stone to Mars. Why don't we just go straight to Mars? I mean, I would think by now anybody who's really looked at this would know, let's get our feet wet or dusty on the moon before we tackle the red planet. I think I'm right about that, yeah? I mean, I think that that's where I was going with we need some time to yeah. understand, yeah. right? We, if I take the ISS analogy, uh, we use the ISS to uh, test, uh, we tested systems for the ISS on the ground, and then we launched them, and I think the, the gentleman to my left here had, had something to do with it, and, and we learned that they stopped when they got in microgravity for a variety of reasons, the fluid behavior, whatever it might be. We learned that lesson on ISS of the analog. So we don't want to get to go right to Mars and then have everything gunk up, to use a technical term, and uh, not having tested it on the moon. But the connectivity for the moon to Mars is important of the systems, but don't lose sight of what there is to learn scientifically on the moon. So we're going to go and test our human systems, but we're, we're, our priority is to do the science that we can do on the moon that's outlined uh, by Nikki and by the Moon to Mars objectives as well. So they're connected system-wise, but I think don't overlook the science as well. Jim Free, I'm going to stick with you, but please, everybody, jump in as you, as you wish. Uh, it's only been, what, six, seven weeks since I got the press release about the creation of the Moon to Mars program office which seems like it very much fits the theme of this session, the collaboration that is going to be absolutely necessary among your directorates and others if we're going to have success in all of this. Can you tell us a little bit about that office and, and how it represents that collaboration? 
Uh, sure. So uh, we actually have uh, kind of three offices that uh, report to the associate administrator, currently me. Uh, one is our strategy and architecture office, which is really tasked with planning the long-term missions. So you think Artemis 6 and out, they're really focused mm. on that architecture, connecting Moon to Mars. And then the Moon to Mars program office is really down and in, think near-term missions, Artemis 5 through Artemis 2. But they both have interfaces to these two mission directorates, both of those offices I talked about. So we want to plan that strategy and architecture with technology infusion in mind, with science in mind. And then the Moon to Mars program office, those near-term missions. How are we running the technology that's on there and how are we doing the science? But the scope of that office, Moon to Mars, I think is important because the Mars element of that office is pulling the technologies. It's providing requirements to the lunar missions, to the lunar systems, to develop the hardware that we need and keep that connectivity so we're not developing a life support system that has no connectivity to what we want to use on the surface of Mars or on the way to Mars. So the scope of that office is great for that reason, but it's also very much focused on the near-term missions to get it done. And for us, when Jim formed the Moon to Mars Program Office, the Strategy Analysis Office, it, it really aligned us well. And it, it gives us a path towards having understanding the key technology gaps we have to satisfy and which ones of those highest priority because we can't afford to fund everything. So we've got to be really judicious about what we do and do as much of the partnerships as we can. And for the science, I mean, I think it gives us a, a really easy interface into the other uh, mission directorate. And, you know, we obviously, we're scientists. We want to do everything everywhere all of the time. <laughs> and, um, you know, these missions, we have, to, we, you know, it's, it's a place to really get the requirements ironed out um, and who's responsible for them and what's actually possible on the various missions. Um, obviously, we're starting kind of early. We're sending our clips landers to the moon, commercial partners, and, you know, they'll be starting to launch later this year. Uh, we're really excited about that. We're working on that, but we're also looking at what we can do with Artemis 2. Obviously, we had science on Artemis 1. Um, we had the biological and physical science inside the um, Orion capsule itself. So what are we going to do with Artemis 2? And then, you know, for me, it's what's the really exquisite science that we're going to do with astronauts who can actually make decisions right there kind of focusing our efforts and, and giving us a partner to really kind of iron these things out with. We got a lot of great science out of Apollo, still getting great science out of oh, Apollo. Yes. Uh, but, you know, there was always that push and pull between we got to get the astronauts there and back safely and, you know, how much science can they do? They were all pretty busy on the moon. How has that evolved? I, I got to tell you something that struck me yesterday when we had a, a SpaceX representative on stage who said that the crew compartment in the Starship lander is about double the size of this stage. And I thought, ooh, that's room for a lot of science. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly what I would think, too. Um, but, uh, I mean, there's still going to be that push and pull. I mean, um, you know, you have an astronaut safety. You have to get them there safely and back home safely, and that's obviously the prime objective. But making sure that we're using the time while they're there um, most effectively. If anyone doubts the, the, um, the just the real need to bring samples back from, from whichever destination. You know, looking, we're still doing amazing science with the Apollo samples. And I was out at Johnson a couple of weeks ago and was able to actually tour the labs where they do the, you know, all the, the experiments. And you see these just huge mass spectrometers. There's no way you could fly that to the moon or fly that to Mars. So you bring the samples back and you have your incredible equipment here. But also if you just um, compare the type of equipment we had even here on Earth 50 years ago with what we have now. Mm. You know, you can keep those samples and you can mature your technology and do more and more and more with those samples. So, um, you know, that we'll still be doing a lot more with Apollo samples for decades to come. And as we bring samples back from Mars, clearly I'm excited about bringing samples back from Mars. You know, there's going to be just decades and decades of work um, with those Mars samples and more samples from the moon. Um, first time we're going to the South Pole, it's going to be the very different types of samples we'll be bringing back. No better example than those lunar samples brought back by Apollo for the, of the gifts that keep on giving. It was also just recently the announcement within the uh, Solar System Exploration Research Virtual Institute of five more teams that have been selected to do more science on the moon once those samples are brought back here. And I know that this is, you know, Jim Free, this is a, a collaboration between your directorate and Nikki's. 
it seems like this also represents the kinds of collaboration we're, we're seeing within the agency? Absolutely. I think it's, it's essential that we maintain that connectivity to science uh, in everything that we do. That's been a, a funding source, I think, that's been around since, since Bill Gerstenmaier was the, the mm-hmm. AA, because mm-hmm. when I was his deputy, I remember that. But I think it's, it's important to enable the science however we can mm-hmm. and at every level. It's not just about, for us, it's our big uh, international partners, you know, providing elements. It's, it's making science available to everyone. To Nikki's answer to uh, Nikki's last question, to add to that, we're going there. We have to establish a human presence to test the systems, but we're doing it to enable science. And we enable science through that, through the samples we bring back. Nikki, I know, develops that with the science definition teams that she puts together. It's great inroads at every level for folks to take advantage of that science and, and what we're able to provide in samples. Yeah, and I'll also note, you know, our biological and physical sciences division, they, they're starting out on something called CIRIS, which is commercially enabled rapid um, mm. space science. And, you know, looking at what they're doing with that right now, we obviously, we send an experiment up to space, you wait, you know, you get your samples back and then you test it. Um, What they're doing with this is really looking at um, just accelerating the science. So scientists, astronauts would actually then be preparing samples, doing the testing, making the determination, you know, do we want to do it differently? And just, so we'll be taking years off some of the uh, other timescales for the science we can do as well. I'll add to that too, actually, because we're really excited about the, the survey teams that, that have been formed, uh, because we have a lot of touch points. The, one of the key things we're trying to do in terms of understanding how we can take advantage of the resources of the moon and, and process it is to really understand what they are and, and the, the prospecting things and so on. So I think we have our Lunar Service Innovation Consortium, and I think we'll have long, strong touch points with, with those with the survey as they come forward. That takes me right to the next question I was hoping to ask you to talk to you about, and that's the kinds of things that the most critical steps in terms of preparing to do the science, but also the technologies, the technology demonstrations that the moon is going to enable for us and and Gateway is going to enable for us uh, that we really have to see. I know we're, we're partway there, right? There's been good progress, but we still have a ways to go before we can get humans to Mars and back safely. I mean, I would say the, the, I, I talked about the systems on the surface that we can test and use at Mars. Gateway's incredibly important. We can run analog missions from Mars analog missions from Gateway. So we can send the crew there, have them spend six months on Gateway in some of our later uh, expeditions out there, like they're flying to Mars for six months and get deconditioned as you do in microgravity, then send them down to the lunar surface for 30 days, have them operate, test, the, test themselves out, and then come back to Gateway and stay for six months and then come back to Earth. So we can simulate a Mars mission um, from microgravity to partial gravity back to microgravity, which will help inform how the human responds, but we'll be doing science all the way, all the way through that. And we'll need the technologies that, that Jim and his team are developing to make that happen. Some of the advanced ECLIS from uh, radiation protection uh, as an example of, of things that really drive our systems. So I think the connection is clearly there for me. Jim, I mean, that's a great example, radiation. You'd be outside the Van Allen belts. Yeah. So it's gonna be a lot like a trip to Mars. Yeah, it absolutely, absolutely is, and and there's there's a lot we'll learn from Mars. Some of the technologies that we have working on is you know the gateway, the the, power, the propulsion elements of the gateway, the, the electric thrusters are an advanced size design that we actually have just delivered the qualification unit as part of our development for activity for it. The solar arrays that, that will power the gateway are is, is a long time development that we had in technology that has has on the rollout solar arrays that that are now also. The replacement arrays for station used in missions as well as gateway. Um, when you look at the surface, there's so many things that we're going to be doing there and operating and, and the, uh, establishing an infrastructure is one of the key elements that you can you can do in terms of establishing a base here, a foothold on Moon, and then that activity is understanding how we do that for Mars. Uh, reliable power source, the life support, and um, advanced habitation systems, and all these sort of things we can we can learn a lot from from being on the Moon first whole new technologies that are in development, not only across directorates, but across NASA centers. 
one of my favorite people on earth, Rob Manning, the chief engineer at JPL. Love to talk with him and, and, you know, sit and watch videos of him, of tests of parachutes and aeroshells being tested in Earth's atmosphere. And then just watching his reaction, which he almost is delighted when they get shredded. But, I mean, very promising technology, one that uh, some of your staff people have, have talked about. Um, and I'm thinking of this program called, is it Loftid? And am I saying it correctly? Low Earth Orbit Flight Test of an Inflatable Decelerator? I'm, I'm sure you're glad you told me what the name was because I could never remember it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We, um, I, I think we've had in development an inflatable heat shield to help land through the hypersonic deceleration uh, for missions. When you get uh, missions, you're trying to land ext extremely large cargo in both, in any planet that has an atmosphere, including Earth. Yeah, the big challenge is how do you do that slow down? And you need a lot of drag area. One of the best ways to get a drag area is to have it be an inflatable. So back on November 10th, we flew in a public-private partnership with ULA. No exchange of funds. They contributed their part. We contributed ours. It's an Earth. It's a potential for large return to Earth activities as well as Mars. And and for us, we've got to find those kind of partnerships as we go forward. So, anyways, it, we flew on the JPSS2 mission. We were a rideshare. For, for that. So after the, the JPSS-2 completed its mission, uh, it was an Atlas V out of Vandenberg. Uh, then we then we were released and we did, we did the demonstration of, of an inflatable decelerator back to Earth. Um, and it could not have worked better mm. um, as we went through it. Extremely stable. We saw the inflation. We extremely stable. It landed right where it was supposed to, just off the coast of, of Mars. We were hoping, we had an ejectable data recorder that we ejected before we got to the ground because that would be something we knew would float and would have a beacon. But we, uh, we were hoping to recover the whole unit, the whole system, which we did. Uh, it landed within a few miles of where our boat was and stuff. So, yeah. and, and when you look at it, the shell itself, the aeroshell itself, inflated shell, looks almost pristine, like you could just fly it again. Wow. The only place that there's, there was damage was at the nose cap. The, the thermal protection system up there had some water damage when it hit. We also heard a little bit about aeroshell development from a JAXA representative yesterday, since they also see great promise in this, which I should go straight to talking about international collaboration. But before I do, I mentioned the centers collaborating with each other and among the directorates as well. Talk about how critical that is to doing science on Mars and putting footprints up there. It kind of ties to the centers as well as the international. But I mean, if you look at something as ambitious as Mars sample return, you know, we're doing that with a lot of partners. Um, there's many centers at NASA with JPL, Goddard and Marshall all producing really critical pieces for Mars sample return. But also, um, you know, we, we have full partnership with the European Space Agency. Um, you know, we are flying some of our NASA hardware on their orbiting system. They're providing um, a robotic arm on the actual lander that we'll put down that NASA's um, designing. So, you know, it, it's really critical that we that we have these, these really tightly coupled partnerships um, that, you know, the same we're making contributions to their Rosalind Franklin um, mission as well. Well, so I think it's in the, the whole spirit of, of our exploration and the Artemis Accords moving forward. You know, we just have um, just innate collaboration, yes, between the NASA centers, but also out into the world. Science side, but also, I mean, I think of maybe the most obvious example of the kind of global collaboration, Artemis Accords. But there are even deeper relationships than that. I'm thinking of that ESA service module for Orion, which uh, did a pretty good job uh, not long ago, right? Yeah, it absolutely, it absolutely performed. Uh, all the vehicles performed well, all elements of the vehicles. The ESA service module absolutely did um, with uh, a lot of uh, subsystems, propulsion, power, cooling on, on Artemis II. It'll have all the gases uh, and liquids for the crew. So, um, but we build only from there. You talked about Gateway. We have the International Hab that will fly on Gateway. That's part of that. The Esprit refueling module that's going to be on there. Jack's actually built the ECLIS, is building the ECLIS for the IHAB module. Uh, we're obviously working with uh, other countries, the Japanese on the pressurized rover. Um, the Canadians announced that they have approved for a, a medium-sized utility rover that we'll be working with. We're flying a Canadian crew member on our first crew. 
and we have a whole number of partnerships in work as well on study agreements talking about how folks can participate big and small. It's not just about the multi-billion dollar elements. The Germans and the Israelis flew the radiation vest on, the, on Artemis One. Yes. You talked yeah. about that, right? So science collaboration, international science collaboration, great themes. All the CubeSats that we flew that had science uh, on them as well as international. Um, and it, it really transcends the Accords. So the Accords are great mm. in terms of their thematic about how we're going to operate, how we're going to share data. And then there's how do people participate in the, the individual missions, sharing science being one of them. Um, we have uh, partners like the is, uh, Israelis and the Australians who've taken our objectives and given them to their industry and say, hey, respond how you can be part of these objectives. So it's building off of their participation in the accords that now moves over to the programmatic side. But I'll, I'll just add, there's, we're also doing a lot of interagency collaborations as we go through it. You had a session yesterday, I think, here that talked about our agreement with the recent agreement we had for, um, with with DARPA on the on the Draco de flight demonstrator for a nuclear thermal propulsion system. Um, we're really excited about that. And, and it, it, while NASA and, Dra and DARPA are the major players there, there's also roles um, outlined for Space Force and DOE. It's a multi-agency activity, and we're looking for more of those as we go forward. Industry participation already come up, commercial side, has been a pretty notable success uh, in recent years. Can you talk a little bit more about how these relationships have evolved and are, are also going to help us get out to the red planet? For us, obviously, we're building off the success of commercial cargo and commercial crew uh, and those models that have been put in place. We're buying services for our landers. Uh, so our first, uh, first two lander awards were to SpaceX for um, their, uh, the first lander for Artemis III and then their more sustainable lander. And we have a competition that will make the announcement here very tomorrow. soon. Tomorrow? Uh, You're among friends. Uh, Care to tip it, us off? No, it's out there now. So yeah, tomorrow. For our other lander provider, which is a service, we're buying our spacesuits as a service as well, uh, which has started off uh, good for us. Um, and then we're, we're looking at things like our lunar train vehicle, our unpressurized rover to, uh, to buy as a service. Also, we had our draft RFP about that. So it's going well. I mean, there's challenges. We all see that uh, you know, we need Starship to launch and be successful, to be, be successful for our first lander. Um, it's a great process. It's a good contract structure uh, in terms of cost savings, but we still need to hit schedule. And that's what's driving me right now is hitting schedule and all of our and buying services, no matter what we're, no matter what we're getting. But those are the three I'd highlight as our, our prime examples. We'll be right back after this short break. Hi, y'all. LeVar Burton here. Through my roles on Star Trek and Reading Rainbow, I have seen generations of curious minds inspired by the strange new worlds explored in books and on television. I know how important it is to encourage that curiosity in a young explorer's life. That's why I'm excited to share with you a new program from my friends at the Planetary Society. It's called the Planetary Academy, and anyone can join. Designed for ages 5 through 9 by Bill Nye and the curriculum experts at the Planetary Society, the Planetary Academy is a special membership subscription for kids and families who love space. Members get quarterly mail packages that take them on learning adventures through the many worlds of our solar system and beyond. Each package includes images and factoids, hands-on activities, experiments and games, and special surprises. A lifelong passion for space, science, and discovery starts when we're young. Give the gift of the cosmos to the explorer in your life. Vicki, you started to address this with commercial participation yeah. in science activities. Expand on that. Yeah, so we have a, a couple. So one is um, obviously the CLIPS, the commercial lunar payload that we're sending to the moon. Uh, so we've uh, actually been um, touring and visiting some of our, our providers, the industry partners who are actually providing the landers. It's really cool to actually see the lander and see the science on the side of it. But, you know, really looking forward to getting those up to schedule to go this year. Um, you know, many more to schedule to go after that. Going to very challenging areas. I mean, things mm. like landing, landing at the South Pole, landing um, in total shadow 
shadow and having to survive the night. There's some pretty exciting things. Uh, one that will be like, uh, I mean, these are sort of the tech demos that Jim might talk more about, but you know, one that's actually going to hop. So it'll land and then it'll hop into the shadow. And then, you know, the plan is anyway, it'll hop back out again. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they're, they're just really, really cool things that, that we're doing. And we're taking advantage of, of maturing these commercial capabilities, but putting science on them wherever we go. Also, um, as we transition from the ISS to commercial LEO destinations, um, you know, starting to plan what can we do with these sort of new facilities. And I, I mentioned Cirrus as, as one example of, mm -hmm. of actually being able to do, do science sort of on the spot, as opposed to, um, you know, having to take years, but even looking at um, what we can do with biological and physical sciences, you know, can we put some of those experiments on CubeSats and launch them, as Jim said, you know, launch them with Artemis or launch them with one of our, you know, our, our other commercial providers instead of always waiting for, um, you know, an opportunity on ISS, can we take advantage of some of these other commercial partnerships just to get more, more science into space? That's, that's, that's my goal, is more science into space. So taking advantage of every single piece of the Moon to Mars initiative. So starting with the ISS, commercial lunar destination, flying stuff in, in Orion, um, putting experiments on the gateway. You know, we have uh, external payloads on the gateway, um, looking at what kind of science can be done inside the gateway. Then we've got clips going to the lunar surface. Then we've got astronauts going to the lunar surface. We've got Mars sample return. You know, I mean, we're, we're sort of taking advantage of every single opportunity to do science. I can't wait for those spacecraft to reach the South Pole and start yeah. digging down to that yeah. wet stuff. That's going to be so we're, cool. We're excited for it too. I, what I'll say is, is you know, we're increasingly pushing for partnerships on, in the investments we make, which isn't always intuitive when you're working with uh, technology developments, sometimes at a very low technology readiness level. But the, the it is an exciting time to be working in space with the, all the, in, the interest in, in investments as we go forward. So, um, and Nikki alluded to it, we have a tipping point and a, some uh, announcement collaborative opportunities or ACO type solicitations that we do about every other year. And we're, um, we've just recently announced our ACOs and we're, we're about ready to announce our, our tipping point selections. But these are, are very, oftentimes, uh, key technology developments that we would demonstrate as part of it on the, on the moon. It, an example of that is the Intuitive Machine's second mission, as we go through it, is, is actually pretty much a, mostly, a, almost all a, a technology mission. And uh, Nikki alluded to the, the hopper that, that you know goes a mile at a time or something around the surface, hops into a permanent shadow region and can hop out and, and stuff. With that, we are demonstrating a, a 4G LTE network, a wireless network on the moon. And we also have um, the first demonstration of, of a, a drill looking for ice water as so we go through it. That same drill or you know a second copy of that drill is gonna fly on the Viper mission that, that, mm. that Nikki leads and stuff. So it's, it's, so, and we have all kinds of places like that. In, in the in cislunar space as well, we flew the capstone mission was as a way to get to the NRHO orbit early. And we had a goal of a, a couple of years ago, of get, let's get, they, let's let's come up with a way to fly a CubeSat in the NRH orbit that Gateway does, and do that in enough time that it can help influence things. And uh, we've it's it's now spent 120 or so days on the moon, at, at the moon, in the orbit and stuff. It's working extremely well now, and and is in the actually the experiment phase of of autonomous navigation as we're going through it. So we have lots of examples, and and they're they're very strong examples of 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 the industry, academia, and the government working together. Yeah. Probably no, we're kind of partial to CubeSats at my organization, mm -hmm. so. But I actually think that the tech demos that we're doing with Clips, I mean, I know I'm supposed to get excited about the science, but um, the, the tech demos are really cool. And there's something on every single one. We, we're you know, trying. The mm. advanced solar arrays and then the precision landing, which is going to be so cool. I mean, so uh -huh. things like doing the precision landing with a Clips lander that is going to immediately yeah. help and inform as we, you know, do things moving. I'll, I'll just add one more um, that this is kind of a nice example like that is um, the terrain relative navigation system that we flew to on Mars Perseverance to land accurately in the, the Jezreel crater has, it, what we've done since then is, is we developed it for that in concert with science. And then what we've done since then is, is develop a commercialized product or the, the industry has developed a commercialized product that we've helped them with. And so they're flying, that, that technology is now flying on some of these clips landers.
we've got partnerships with everybody. I mean, it's, it's, it's commercial, it's academia, it's industry. I mean, it's going to take those kind of partnerships and those kind of relationships to do these big, hairy, audacious goals that we want to do. I think, honestly, it will be hard to think of an example that doesn't include mm. a really, really important critical partnership um, in every aspect. Uh, I'd highlight the architecture that we just rolled out a couple weeks ago. Um, you know, we have the Moon to Mars objectives, the 63 objectives that were developed by the entire agency, uh, by, developed by the mission directorates. Uh, we have the document that explains those that came out just a week or so before the architecture, talks about the, the meaning behind each one. Then we have our architecture definition document, which is uh, we and ESDMD have the responsibility to shepherd through, but it's developed with all the mission directorates. Um, and then uh, that the specific elements that come out of that architecture are collaborations between all of us. So from the strategy at the objectives level to the implementation, I, I, I said publicly several times, I'm so proud of the fact that we can connect our strategy to requirements. There's not a lot of companies that can do that, let alone a government agency. And is it perfect the first time out? Probably not, but this is a yearly process we're going to go through, and we go through it as a group, all the mission directorates together, and the centers, by the way, to your earlier point. Yeah, and, and even just the cross-pollination between the various tracks that we had. You know, so we, there was a science track, there's a sustainability, there's the transportation, and we were all kind of dropping into one another's all the way through to, to just make sure that, you know, we, again, you're taking advantage of it or you understand what the other ones are doing. And so, you know, that was just kind of seamless even as we were putting the architecture together. And we did ourselves, we've been developing over the last few years, is our way to help guide our investment strategy. And we call it our strategic technology framework that we developed. Um, and with that, we were developing um, objectives and uh, as, as in parallel, basically, to the activity on the moons and Mars, and it, it mapped extremely well. We were able to do that really well. So now, naturally, there's some things. Moon to Mars objectives are broader than just technology items, uh, much broader. And uh, but also, our our scope is more than just Moon to Mars. It's supporting the other science missions and multiple other places. So it's not a complete one to one, but everything that we have it maps really well. And then with the Moon to Mars objectives and and the follow on technology gaps, then we can feed that into our investments strategies go forward. You don't quite go far enough back to be able to say you were there for Apollo when it was pretty much we're going alone at NASA, other, if you ignore some rather large cost-plus contracts. Can you even imagine today taking on the goals, the objectives that are currently in place at NASA without doing the sorts of collaborations that you've been describing? Nikki? No, I, I really can't. Um, I, you know, we, we certainly go together. Um, as, as we return to the moon. Uh, and I, I think that's a really important, important thing that we're doing. It's also really great. I mean, it's just, it's great to be collaborating and having, and actually having a lot of the new partners, um, people that are new to space. And that's actually, that's something we've been kind of helping with the, in the science mission director, it is, is, you know, finding new ways for some emerging partners to, to come in and, and do something meaningful and, and, you know, kind of grow their space capabilities too. So it's just, uh, it, it, no, I can't imagine it and I don't want to, yeah. <laughs> don't want to imagine it either. Jim Free? Uh, I can't imagine it. Um, at all. And we just had Space Symposium where we, we met with all of our international partners because everybody's there, so it's a great chance to meet with everybody. Um, I have the privilege of really going around the world working with all of our international partners on their future plans, seeing their excitement. Um, if I just look at the excitement of having a Canadian astronaut um, on the, the crew, by the way, the crew is in D.C. today and tomorrow. Um, and what a great guy, visits. Jeremy yeah, Hansen. Fantastic. Yeah. But you see the enthusiasm that the entire crew brings, but one uh, astronaut from that country, it, it shows you the excitement that it brings and the really commitment around the world to work together. So I can't even imagine it, nor could I imagine trying to afford it all ourselves either. There's a practical nature to this, um, but it is truly about going together for all humanity this time. This is the only way we could do it. it we would not succeed if it wasn't for together. My boss, the science guy, Bill Nye, he says a lot of cool things, but one of the things he says is that space brings us together and brings out the best in us. And uh, this seems to be a great example of uh, what that's capable of. Um, let's go out to you folks. Hi. 
Hi, uh, Eric Antonson, Baylor College of Medicine. Thank you very much for this talk. It's been fascinating. One of the things, if you've been watching NASA for the last few years, is there's a significant shift towards uh, commercial services contracts in the way that you've handled your business. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of that and also some of the challenges that you've found? I think, I believe CLIPS is a commercial services contract now, and it seems to be a, a, a changing business model over the last decade. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, CLIPS is a great, great example. Um, it's certainly enabling. It's enabling us to get more science um, onto the, the moon. It's enabling technology developments. There are challenges, um, for sure. Um, you know, the, these, it's the first time we're really doing these things. Um, certainly, my predecessor, Thomas, um, said, you know, we don't expect all of them to succeed. We're willing to reach out, and, and if some don't work, they don't work, but it's part of doing business. Certainly, we want them all to succeed, um, and it, it, this is landing on the moon. It's not easy. So there are definitely challenges, even practices and, and best practices and different ways of, um, you know, that we, we would normally do missions and, um, you know, the challenge of even integrating science. But there's, there's certainly challenges, but I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be worth it um, when that first CLIPS lander touches down on the moon. Gentlemen? I'd, I'd add what, just highlight maybe a little bit more what I said earlier, the commercial cargo and commercial crew. I look at what that has enabled to bring launches back to the US. It obviously enables a lot for us on space station, but brought that back to the US. Uh, the three I mentioned, suits, landers, and LTV, those are markets that don't exist today and we're buying services in them. So we're enabling, trying to enable services so that it enables other things, perhaps on the lunar surface, elsewhere in space. But on the lunar surface, our ultimate goal is to not be the only one there and seeing commercial on the surface. So we're hoping that the trend of commercial crew, cargo and crew, and now with what we're trying to do, enables things further. And, and I'll just add, I think that whenever you create an environment that encourages innovation in order to get ahead, and in the process being competitive, as it, it brings out the best almost all the time. Hi, sir. Hi, Bruce Tchaikovsky, University of Colorado. Oh, it's Bruce. Hi, Bruce. Uh, let, me, let me follow up uh, with a question to Nikki on, on the CLIPS comments. Can you envision a scenario where a Mars equivalent uh, commercial type of partnership might work? And you want to say anything about the MAVEN mission while we're at it? <laughs> go MAVEN. Yeah, go MAVEN. Um, Yes, Maven is going strong. Um, I, I mean, we, we haven't planned um, for for that. Um, I think we'll probably see how the model works on the moon. Um, I'm kind of kind of taking a leaf out of Jim's comments of we you know we 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 hone things on the moon and then we move them to Mars. Um, I think we'll have to see how how successful um, it is at the moon. But um, I certainly could envisage doing that type of thing and seeing how we can put more infrastructure on Mars. You know, it, it, we're getting back to what both of my colleagues said about, um, you know, we need to be, if, if we're going to do humans to Mars in, in, a, in a 17 years, we'd have to be really starting to think about the infrastructure that we'd have to have in place for them at Mars. Um, but it, it's certainly something to, to consider, but I do want to see how well we do at the moon first. And for those of you who aren't familiar with it, MAVEN, helping us to understand where all that air went uh, on Mars. Uh, that. You know, once upon a time had Mars uh, much more uh, looking like Earth than, uh, than it does now. There is one other kind of collaboration, which I'm going to go back to that announcement from the Institute that you collaborate on. Uh, and it's the collaboration between humans and robots. And asking you how essential is that going to be as the humans are right there with the robots helping to get the work done? I look at it, uh, I, I mentioned the, the Canadian uh, utility rover. You know, that, that's an example where that, that will, will work autonomously when the crew's not there, but can follow the crew along. The crew can only carry so much with them when they leave the habitat or the lander or the LTV. We can have the, the robots going with them to carry things with them or carry them back. We want to take some of the samples um, and keep them at cryogenic, I'll, I'll say cold, temperatures. Uh, cryogenic is going to be a whole new reach, but we want to keep them cold so that we can preserve as much as many of the volatiles that we can in the sample. And getting them back uh, in, in, a, in a condition that we can use them as we go through all the chain of custody as we're starting to talk about it, um, that starts on the, on the moon. And, and we can have them work closely with the astronauts. We can have robots scout and, and the astronauts control them, much like you see 
you know, soldiers controlling, controlling drones today. We can mm. help them explore without taking risks, perhaps down into a permanently shadowed crater. Um, so, so to me, it's, it's both a safety and a science return that benefits those two working together. And, and I'll say, you know, um, Moon is an obvious place because there, there's a lot of the, the crew will come in and out, people will come in and out, but, but there'll be activities that we want to extend to. But Mars, actually, if you think about it, um, almost any scenario going, getting to Mars pre-positions a lot of supplies and logistics or creates fuel. And all that would be, have to be done robotically before the crew is there. Hi, Crystal Puga, um, mission architect with Northrop Grumman. Um, so I think we all agree that um, you know, the moon is laying the foundation for getting us to Mars. And there's a component of the moon where we're continuing to evolve. We can continue to do more science. We can grow our habitat, add modules. But at what point does continuing to evolve and learn on the moon um, become a detriment to getting us to Mars? Or do you think that we can mm. handle to run both in parallel? I defer to the scientists for the science side of things, but you know, from a practical aspect, we want to set it up so that the work on the moon continues. And if again, I go to the ISS and the commercial LEO destination model, we'd love for to see that model happen on the moon where we're obviously a, a strong upfront investor. And I say we with all our international community, and we'd love to see that continue on with others doing things on the moon that they like to do but we can still benefit from. And maybe you know, we're not uh, flying an entire vehicle there like we will be for the foreseeable future, um, but we can buy services. We can send our crews there and live in someone else's habitat or go somewhere else on the surface so that we can afford going to Mars. So I think off of the moon. So I think it's, it's this balance of everybody wants to say, when, when do we stop at the moon? The answer is we don't stop at the moon we continue working at, on the moon and doing science on the moon while we go on to Mars. We're just hopeful that the business model changes like we're trying to do in ISS and CL, commercial LEO destinations today. From a science point of view, there's always going to be science to do on the moon. I mean, you think of any destination you go to, there's always, you, I mean, you, you get more questions than you get answers with every single thing you do. And, you know, we've got um, really strong, obviously, lunar science we want to do, but there's also astrophysics we can do from the moon. There's heliophysics, learning about the ancient sun. I mean, there's so much to do and so, so, so many places to explore that I certainly don't think from a science perspective it will hold us up. And we're already doing amazing science on Mars. I mean, which actually, if anything, wants me to accelerate being able to do more. Um, you know, I'm sure you all saw the perseverance results earlier. I can't remember if it was earlier this week or last week, you know, with the um, taking the rock sample that's clearly been um, sort of washed down from, from a, a different region, showing that we've had flowing water on Mars. And that just makes me absolutely desperate to go to Mars right now, actually, and go and find out what's going on. But I think from a science point of view, Whatever we study, we get more questions than answers every time we do it. I, I think the, a key question that the Moon to Mars objectives try to answer is it's not Moon or Mars, it's Moon and Mars. Correct. And so for us, a key part of uh, is to create an environment, as Jim talked about, uh, that's a sustainable presence on, on the moon. The sustainable presence does not mean NASA going you know, once or twice a year. It's that we're enabling uh, whole, the entire community across the world to be able to go and take advantage of that. Are you going to get a big uh, radio telescope someday on the uh, far side? I'm sure somebody's going to propose one. I know. I, I, NIAC, they, they, there seem to be three <laughs> or four every year proposals yep. for building those things uh, out in radio silence. Yep. We've only got a couple of minutes left, and I don't see anybody at the microphone. So, Jim Reuter, I'm going to come back to you, as I said I would. Looking back over your more than four decades, highlights, things you're most proud of, and, and what are you most looking forward to as you uh, watch what happens uh, after your exit? Yeah, I, um, well, first thing I'll say is, is Robert Lightfoot, when he retired from NASA, said he was going to run through the tape. I'm going to run through the tape. And, and then, so my focus is really on, on executing my job over the next month and a half or so. I've been at NASA, my 40-year anniversary was just a couple weeks ago. Hmm. And that means I've been at NASA for a little over 60% of NASA's existence. Uh, when I came to NASA... We had just flown the sixth shuttle mission out of the 135. And that sixth one was the first shuttle mission that was 
after Columbia, it was Challenger as we go through it. So I had the privilege of working, you know, a lot of places around the agency, mostly in human space flight. During those early formative years, it was working payload integration on shuttle. I was part of the International Space Station from the start to the time we went permanently occupied and, and running the life support systems as we went through that. After Columbia, I was brought in as, in a leadership position to help figure out how to keep FOMO on a tank. And uh, then over the last eight years, I've had the privilege of, extreme privilege of being uh, working in space technology with the last five years of leading it. So, I, you know, I, I just can't say enough how lucky I am on the best place to work. But what I would say in terms of exciting me, I don't know that there's ever been a more exciting time in space than now. I mean, FY22 was an incredible year for NASA and, and you know, for, for the world. But just the, the breadth of the types of things we're doing, the interest and engagement of industry and academia, other, uh, other partner, other international agencies and, and internationals themselves, uh, it's just we've never had that before. And it's, it's one of the most exciting things I think that we do is, is working it together. It's always, it always boils down to the people you work with. Thank you for your service. I, I look to... Uh... The other members of the panel, Jim Free, Nikki, if you have any closing thoughts, uh, now's the time. I, I, I think Jim's absolutely right. I mean, it, it, there's such an energy and such an excitement, um, you know, through, through, through the whole community, I think. I mean, certainly at the agency, you know, I, I used the term just before we were coming out, like I feel like we're standing in the time before, mm. you know, like we're, we're, we're going to remember this as the time before everything just, just really happened. And so I, it's an incredibly exciting time to be at the agency and to be uh, leading science. Jim Free, get the last word. Yeah, it's hard to top those two. I, 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 uh, I said before we came out here that I had some revelation over the weekend that we're doing what, Apollo was asked to do, to take mm. humans to the moon. And we can get caught up in the budget fights or what's this or what's that, but ultimately that's what we've been asked to do. And that is an extreme privilege for me and uh, an extreme opportunity, frankly, for all of us to, to change history forever. Thank you, all three of you. Keep it up and uh, onward to the moon and Mars. Uh, and please, one more round of applause for our three associate administrators. I've yet to go to the Humans to Mars Summit myself, but it's definitely on my bucket list. And whether or not we can send humans to Mars by the 2030s, the fact that it's within reach is beautiful. There were a lot of wonderful panels and conversations at the Humans to Mars Summit this year, and events from all three days of the conference are available to watch online for free. You can learn more about the Humans to Mars Summit and our friends at Explore Mars at their website at exploremars.org. All right, now let's check in with Bruce Betts, the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society, for What's Up. Hi, Bruce. Hi, Sarah. How's it going? Hunky dory, spiffy keen swell. Or and should you? I say, What's Up? Uh, planets, <laughs> stars, <laughs> stuff. But, uh, all right, we'll just get right into it. Venus, still over there, hanging out in the west after sunset, looking super, super bright. If you look above Venus, you'll see the much dimmer Mars. And uh, Mars will be hanging out with a similarly bright, slightly brighter star, Regulus, the brightest star in Leo. I'll be particularly close to it on the night of July 10th. So that's kind of fun. And then the moon in the pre-dawn east... On July 11th, the moon will be next to bright Jupiter. So Jupiter's in the pre-dawn east, looking very bright. Saturn's running away off into the, off into the west, so uh, you can see it high in the sky. By dawn, it's actually rising in the middle of the night. You might be able to catch uh, maybe Mercury, but there's a lot of other good stuff. On the night of July 20th, we've got the moon near Mars. So Mars looking dimish. They're off in the West all the time, but the crescent moon joins Mars on July 20th. And that's what's up. I usually keep listener comments for later, but we actually had someone write in this week to say thank you to you, Bruce. Laura Dodd from Eureka, California wrote in to say that because of your What's Up segment and what wasn't going on in the sky, that she was able to keep her friends looking for Mars to appear in the dusk sky on the solstice, specifically because of What's Up, and then it made a really pretty triangle with Venus and the moon. 
Oh, cool. Excellent, excellent. Wonderful. Always good to hear stuff like that. And uh, speaking of good stuff, we'll go on to this week in space history. 1979, Voyager 2 flew past Jupiter, and we grabbed a bunch more cool imagery and data about the big planet and its big old moons and, and little ones. And then 20 years ago, 20 years ago, the Mars rover Opportunity launched, headed off to do its thing at Mars and find all sorts of great stuff. It just... I know that it was 20 years ago, but it doesn't feel like 20 years ago. Ah, uh, yes. I know this feeling. Yeah. I know it well. On to random space fact. Do you need a cough drop? <laughs> yeah, probably. No, I'm good. Good. Just wanted to share that. Um, lunar material returned by the Apollo astronauts. Probably no... 382 kilograms or 842 pounds of lunar material brought back in 2,200 individual specimens, which have been processed into more than 110,000 individually cataloged samples, hanging out and distributed by the curators at Johnson Space Center. That's a lot of samples. Let us move on to the trivia contest, where I asked you, what is the closest nebula to Earth. How'd we do? And did people agree? People agreed on this one, although they had all kinds of fun names for it. Uh, one person, Julie Kelly from Kapuras Cove, Texas, called it the Creepy Eyeball Nebula. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, its original name. Kind of looks like the Eye of Sauron or something, but uh, it's the Helix Nebula. Indeed. Which, you know, when we say it's the closest one to Earth, I mean, close is, is relative, but in space, you know, we're talking about an object that's about 700 light years away. So it's actually quite distant, but, you know, close when you think about it. Yeah, it's universe. all relative, but relative to us, it's really far away. Really far away. Relative <laughs> to the size of the galaxy, pretty darn close. Size of the universe, practically touching it. It's funny, too, because I'm, it's hard for me to remember because I was so young, but I'm pretty sure the Helix Nebula was the first thing I ever looked at through a telescope. Because I remember running back to my mom and calling it the Space Cheerio. Considering that it's it's probably closer than like the Ring Nebula or something, it's probably the thing I saw. But our winner this week is Darcio Cordiera from Taubate, Brazil. I haven't gotten to give anything to someone in Brazil yet, so I love this. Your prize, Darcio, is a collection of Orly NASA JWST nail polishes and nail stickers. So if you don't personally use nail polish, highly recommend giving these as a gift to someone. I'm giving them to a bunch of my friends because who doesn't love putting the Carina Nebula on everything? <laughs> huh. Yeah, okay. okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm sure people are wondering this in their brains, because last episode we announced that we were going to be moving the Space Trivia Contest from What's Up into our member community. And since then, I've gotten some questions from people asking how they can send in their questions and comments so we can continue to share them on the show. And don't worry, everyone, we've got you. So you can send us any of your cool stories or comments or questions for Bruce, if you've got cool space questions, you can email them to us at radio at planetary.org. And to make it easier, on our website for each planetary radio page, where we usually have the section that links to our contest page, we're going to be linking to this email. So it will still be just as easy for you to send us all your comments because I love reading them. I love all the, the poetry and the messages that people send us. It's like part of the highlight of my week getting to read people's messages. It's good stuff. Yeah. Oh, this was so cool because months ago, I want to say it was May, we had a space trivia contest winner named Aquiel Godot. And at the time, we had a conversation about whether or not the name Aquiel came from that Star Trek The Next Generation episode called Aquiel. And she actually wrote in this week to answer the question. The answer is yes. She was named for that episode of Star Trek. I wish my name had such a cool origin. <laughs> <laughs> Like, what about you? Are you secretly named for Bruce Wayne or something? There was thought of renaming me the Gorn. <laughs> it's a little uh, original series obscurity. So what's our next trivia contest question, Bruce? We only have two questions left. Oh, which a good one. Who is the oldest person to have flown in space? Suborbital is okay. Half past the Van Carmen line at 100 kilometers. And to be really specific, who is at the, the oldest age? when they flew in space. Not necessarily who's oldest now. Anyway, who's the oldest person to have flown in space? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. 
and you have until Wednesday, July 12th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us your answer. And since we're down to the last two space trivia contest questions on the show before we move it into the community, I'm giving away some giant prizes. I'm not going to go through the whole list, but I'm throwing in stickers and patches and posters and all kinds of cool stuff that I have on my desk just waiting to be prizes. But the thing that everyone's going to be happiest about, I think, is that we track down a few extra rubber asteroids. So our next yes. two winners will receive some of the last <laughs> squishy stress ball asteroids we have. Awesome. <laughs> Excellent for demonstrating asteroid impact. It makes me feel a little better because I, I have one on my desk that I'm unwilling to give away. And uh, for a moment there, I was considering giving it away as one of the last trivia Aww. contest prizes, you know, but now I get to keep but it. Now you don't have to. Yep. That's nice. All right, everybody, go out there, look on the night sky, and think about dental floss. Thank you, and good night. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week with even more space science and exploration. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our dedicated members. You can join us as we work together to explore the Red Planet and others at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, Ad Astra. Ad Astra.